I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of this podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I am here today with my good friend and colleague, Miss Leslie Ray. Hello, everyone. And a special guest, first time around the podcast, none other than Mr. Drew Dill. Hello. Drew, how do you feel about being on today's podcast? I feel somewhat nervous and somewhat uh, excited at the same time. Mixed feelings. So oh. Very excited. We'll, we'll try to do our best to make you feel uncomfortable. Does that sound good? <laughs> I figured I would get nothing less than that. So very excited for it. Perfect. We are going to talk about an article today called Liquidity Ambiguity. And what Drew told me before the podcast is try to say that 10 times fast. And I will not do that on the podcast. Uh, here's what this article is about. There is a language of finance. And that means there are words that are not common language. And one of those words is liquidity. People hear it a lot. You hear it in uh, news articles when they say things like the Federal Reserve is injecting liquidity into the system. Or you might have read in these last couple of weeks about a family office or hedge fund that has caused a lot of collateral damage as it went under and some of the liquidity issues that they had. Now, that word might be common to you, like you hear it a lot, but you might not know how it applies to your particular situation. So what I wanted to talk about on today's podcast is how liquidity is actually a really important concept when it comes to financial planning. And because the word is not often understood, uh, people don't always factor it in when making financial decisions. And with that said, I'm going to throw the ball over to you, Leslie, on what is your thoughts on that? Oh, great question. I think of li liquidity as flexibility for people. So it gives them flexibility to um, um, can buy stuff, uh, sell things, but use that money if they need to. They can sell it really quick if they're in a pinch, or they can invest in something else. Um, so liquidity is kind of important for your flexibility of life, I would say. And different people need different level of, of liquidity. Uh, depending on the cases, which was a question I have for you later. Yeah, and while we go over that question, I'm going to turn it over to Drew. I want to know, what if somebody asked you, what is liquidity? Leslie just said that she would define it as flexibility. What would be your answer? Yeah, I think I think I would agree. I, I liked your illustration that you used in your article on Thoughts on Money with the ATM being in the barber. Um, you can take that. That's a small example. But when we're talking about clients' portfolios, when we're talking about bigger, um, we're just talking about adding zeros to that $5 really is what we're talking about for the $5 that you take out at the ATM that you get charged. And I'm going to pause you real quick because yeah. I'm glad you went there. And I'm going to give that background story for some of our listeners that maybe didn't read the article. The reason I asked you what your definition of liquidity is that Leslie just told us that it means flexibility. I know if I read the dictionary definition, it's uh, assets that can easily be converted to cash in less than six months. So for me, that's presenting this idea of like, oh, no wonder this is confusing because I might not really understand what that means. So I wanted to make it palatable. And I talked about on Saturdays, sometimes I like to get my hair cut, like you mentioned in this mm -hmm. article. So uh, put the kids down to sleep. Um, I got like an hour and a half or two hours where I can go do my thing and mom can rest and uh, we get some freedom. Uh, so I go get my hair cut. I go to the same barber. Um, maybe this is the first time I went there. I go in, show up. I don't have to wait, sit right in the barber chair. Sports are on. Everything's perfect. Haircut, 95% done. And then I look over it and the sign says cash only. 
I talked about I have a pet peeve with cash-only businesses because uh, my thoughts are if you're doing it because you don't want to pay the merchant services credit card transaction fee, just raise your prices a little bit. If you're doing it to uh, evade taxes, I'm really annoyed with you. Uh, Pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But my point is when I get into that pinch where my barber is saying, hey, you owe me X amount of money for this haircut and I have no cash in my wallet, there's a liquidity issue. I don't have cash. Mm -hmm. And what are my options? I look over and I know my bank's not close. I know I can't give my barber an IOU, but there's an ATM machine conveniently placed inside the barbershop that the owner of the barbershop probably owns and gets paid from, which is interesting that he wants to be on the other end of uh, receiving those merchant service fees. Anyway, neither here nor there. But if I go to that ATM, they're going to charge me $5 for getting money out for my haircut. And in relation to how much it is to the amount I'm taking out, it's a big percentage wise, um, right? It might be a rounding error on like my expenses through the month, but it's principal. It's not the point. Um, so my, my point is, is that when you get into a liquidity pinch, when you need cash and there's only one option on the table and there's an expense to take that option, it's not very friendly. In my situation, it is like, meh, whatever, it's $5. Um, like you were pointing to, Drew, in other situations, you move that decimal place over, and it starts to become a huge issue. It starts to become a huge expense to somebody, and sometimes a huge inconvenience. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I, I'm just piggybacking off what Leslie said. All I would, I would agree with that definition, that liquidity is, you think of flexibility, and having the access to have that cash on hand with you know, under six months to be able to pay for uh, big expenses and, and so forth. And so flexibility, I think, is a great way of really defining it. Yeah, and the idea is that when you're building a financial plan, you want to have flexibility. When I was at the barbershop, no optionality. One option, pay $5 to get cash out to pay this guy I owe money to. You don't want financial situations where you can't put three or four options on the table. A lot of the time when a client has in their mind decided what they're going to do financially, I tell them, let's put four other options on the table. Talk about the pros and cons. Even if we go with the route that you planned at the beginning, let's weigh off the trade-offs against these things. What is unfortunate is when you don't have options on the table to look at. Yeah, it's a big part of our job too, especially mine. I I feel doing financial planning with clients is to weigh the pros and cons of each option and figure out, yes, there is probably a best option, but you have other uh, options that you can consider and therefore it's your choice and nobody else makes that choice for you. Yeah, and what I really want to do on, on this podcast and even when we write these articles, I think as a listener, you're starting to get an idea of, okay, so liquidity, Trevor has this barbershop example. He's in a pinch. He only has one option. There's an expense. Leslie's talking about flexibility. So how does this practically apply to my situation? Well, Drew, you're going to have a lot of conversations with clients about, hey, should I pay off my house? Maybe you could tee off for us what that means to somebody's liquidity on their balance sheet if they choose to make that decision. Yeah, I think – so I have a bit of banking background as well and – not only with the banking, but also as a private wealth advisor, I think the most common thing is a client wanting to pay off their mortgage balance, right? Yeah, and it's like an emo- maybe I don't want to use the word emotional because it makes it sounds bad, but it's just something that they had always aspired to. So most of the motivation is like preference driven, I would assume, um, and, and less about uh, like I've weighed all the options, but go on. Yeah, so more emotional driven or preference driven um, rather than math driven, right? When you're really crunching the numbers, possibly depends on the client situation. But that's a that's a huge um, uh, 
that's a huge uh, uh, consistent um, need that clients are always wanting to do is pay off their mortgage balance. But one of the things when we think about your balance sheet is the asset or liability remains the same, right? And you bring this up in your thoughts and uh, money article that if you have a million dollars and you have a million dollar house that you want to buy and you pay that house with 100% cash, um, your balance sheet net worth is still at $1 million. Um, it would be the same thing if you financed it for $1 million and kept the $1 million cash, your net worth is still $1 million. Yeah. In that second example you give, you then have a $1 million asset, a $1 million liability. Those cancel each other out. And you had $1 million in cash. So you have a net worth of $1 million. There's a difference between the two balance sheets, though. It's a difference in liquidity. Correct. Yeah. And if you find yourself in a position to where you paid that house, let's run with, let's pull on that thread and, and, and go with the house example. If you pay that house with a hundred or with a million dollars in cash to where you have no liability um, as far as a, a loan against it because you own it out in cash, but then something happens in your life to where there's a liquidity need, medical expense, somebody in the family, whatever it may be, um, and you don't have any other reserves, then you might find yourself in the barber example, right? And you're going to pay a premium now to get liquidity from whatever asset that you need to get it in. You know, if if it's a home equity line of credit or if it's a short money loan or whatever that may be, you're going to be paying a premium for pulling out that liquidity to pay off whatever the uh, um, the uh, uh, need may be for that crisis. And as you're kind of pointing to, if that need is immediate, um, getting a HELOC tomorrow is not really easy. Like you said, you, had, you have a banking background. The other thing is, what would have been a better rate if you finance the property on day one or you do a cash out refi or you do a HELOC? The better rate is originally financing the loan. That's exactly right. And and also, if you have a million dollars in the bank, most banks will actually drop that rate because you have assets on hand, um, ironically. So you'll get even a better discount on a new purchase loan than you ever will on a refinance or a cash out or a HELOC. And the thing with the HELOC is, is that the the rate becomes variable. Mm-hmm. And so you're subject to fluctu- you know, fluctuation in interest rates, which right now everybody's confident that the interest rates won't rise, but you're you're having a bit of uncertainty because that HELOC is going to be a variable interest rate, just like a credit card would be. Yeah. And we use that word HELOC. It just means home equity line of credit. All we're saying is that there's a line of credit that's collateralized against the property that you own. And the rates are favorable because there's collateral, but not as favorable as a, a first mortgage or something of that nature. Absolutely. So the great thing about this conversation is this is not a recommendation to either keep a mortgage or to pay off your house. It's to say, did you consider the liquidity impact of what you've done? In the reality, I, I don't want to make this like uh, dark and gloomy, but for everybody out there that you see that uh, has a need to do a reverse mortgage or something like that, where they're countering a former financial decision that they made with a financial decision that is less friendly, it might be because they didn't do the upfront planning work. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, usually a last resort planning option, the reverse mortgage is always there if needed, but we are trying to uh, definitely not trying, but we are doing all plans without that as an option. It would be there if needed in the last case scenario. Which I think what you're kind of leading us to is this idea of being the difference between being proactive and reactive. Exactly. Is that you could pay off the house completely and I don't know the probability, but maybe most of the time it actually doesn't matter. 
Um, but you have to plan for some of the time. Yep. Yeah. Most of the time, it doesn't matter if people want to pay off the rest of your loan or not. Um, but sometimes if people are young, maybe it's it better for them to actually leverage their money, use a mortgage and uh, use their cash, the, the pool of cash that they have accumulated the rest of the money instead of paying cash for a home to keep this example uh, keep that on hand to achieve other goals they have and take advantage of other opportunities as well that arise like investments and other things where they can actually um, have a productive asset. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I was talking to a client about this actually today on the way to work. And uh, the interesting thing about financial planning is in some sense, you do this kind of like what if analysis of all these different things that could happen. But what actually happens in life, you only take one path. So it is not common or understood or front of mind for you to think of the opportunity costs of the things that you missed out on. But part of financial planning when you do those forecasts is to try to take you down that optimal path in that what-if analysis so that you can optimize the opportunities that are available to you. Exactly. That's well summarized. Um, We told Drew before this podcast (laughs) to be really careful about kicking the desk and now he's kicked the desk twice so if you hear a a gong it's not somebody in the background uh, telling us we're done it's drew learning how to be on a podcast so welcome to the podcast drew (laughs) i'm sorry about that lead foot no um and you know we on this podcast and even on the thoughts on money blog uh, we have this conversation pretty commonly about this idea of uh, how you finance your home the reason we do is because that is one of the biggest assets or purchases that you have on your balance sheet But remember, today's conversation isn't about, hey, which one is better or worse? Today's conversation is about, did you factor in liquidity? Did you factor that in as something that would be important to consider? And let's transition to a different thing that sits on a lot of people's balance sheets. I opened up this conversation about I've met so many uh, amazing entrepreneurs and business owners uh, sitting in the seat as a financial advisor. And these people have amazing stories, Uh, whatever you want to call it, rags to riches, American dream, pulling themselves up from their bootstraps. They have built these amazing companies. And in that process, because they've seen it from the seed of day one to um, kind of like this huge fruit tree of what they're um, uh, yielding from it now, sometimes they build uh, an overconfidence in the survivability of that business and the reliability of that business. Now, that is not a dig on the business. It's just to say that there are always risks out there. And most business owners realize that from 2020. Uh, 2020 revealed the fragility of everyone's business and that there can always be a risk that isn't often considered, right? Most of us Um, in the world didn't live through the Spanish flu. So we might not understand what COVID would potentially do to a business. The reason I bring that up is that if your advisor creates a net worth statement for you, and you see that you own ABC company, and all of a sudden it's 80% or 90% of your balance sheet, are you having conversations about liquidity? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a because if something happens to that business, the obvious rate of cash flow dries up or a COVID pandemic thing happens, um, that's a huge, huge liability of having the majority of your assets being in an illiquid state. And so that's something that definitely needs to be had as far as a conversation, whether um, there's leverage set up in, ta- in case of cash flow issues, right, for the supplemental time. And that's a 
that's a big part too when we're talking about liquidity and leverage most people just as a practical point to take a step back most people don't do the planning um, when they're in a state with good liquidity and in a good state with good cash flow they forego having the backup reserves for leverage to where then when a covid pandemic happens and they need the leverage they go to the bank and lo and behold they can't get it because their their cash flow is dried up now so they become in a position to where they can't obtain any credit and that becomes a really really big problem right for liquidity because they didn't plan so when they could have gotten credit they didn't think they needed it so they didn't get it when they need credit then you you find yourself in a position to where the businesses cannot get it Um, so that's a big portion too of when clients are talking about not only cash on hand but with your businesses if your business is flushing cash doing well and growing um, setting up secondary safety nets as far as lines of credit and so forth is not a bad idea, even if they're not being utilized, um, but to utilize them in case of a pandemic and so forth. But I think what you're talking about, too, is just liquidity from that business um, and maybe pro- uh, possibly selling off some of those assets uh, to create liquidity events. Well, no, I actually am not talking about anything specifically. I think you hit the nail on the head. We had a podcast recently that talked about this idea of safety nets and if that creates liquidity to the balance sheet, that there's this other reserve that you can tap into that is reliable and that won't dry up, I think that solves for the same problem. I think the conversation that needs to be had um, is if you are somebody with a balance sheet that is very concentrated in a business, there should be a regular discussion about the risk that that implies. And one thing I talked to, the same client I talked to this morning, uh, I was talking to him about, hey, we can talk about the stories of go look at the Forbes richest people in the world. And I'll bet you those top 10 people uh, got wealthy from concentration. Exactly. From most of their balance sheet being in one company. But I also want you to know that they're the exception, not the rule, right? Just like your client who has a business that made it, they are the exception, not the rule. Most small businesses fail. Right? I think it's something like yeah. 80%. I don't want to throw a statistic. I actually don't know the number, but uh, it's a, a high majority of businesses that just don't make it past year two. So they're already beating the odds. And I guess from my perspective is that kind of taking a Vegas analogy, if you keep doubling down and keep doubling down and keep doubling down, sometimes you're going to find yourself in trouble. And sometimes you're going to be wagering a pot more than you're willing to lose. So in that same thread or that same sort of analogy, that's why you hear people say, hey, you should take some chips off the table. This is the idea that you've built a lifestyle, you've built an expectation that really leans on the cash flow from that business. But that business is at the crux or at the epicenter of making sure that that continues to work. So do you have options? Um, You mentioned this idea of using like a line of credit or something to give yourself safety nets. But the other options are, uh, should you sell some of that equity? Um, Would it make sense? All this to say, we're not making a recommendation on this podcast, but we're telling you these are great conversations to have with your advisor. Yes, because people are in different stages of their lives and their progression in their career, their businesses and, and all of that. So the point that Trevor is making is really you need to have an ongoing conversation because at each stage of your life and your, the growth of your business, maybe there is a different answer to your questions or something else that you could be doing at that point to make sure that you have a safety net. I had a question for you guys is 
uh, we have sometimes, or I see sometimes, people have too much liquidity. So how much is too much? Or when does it become too much as far as liquidity instead of uh, putting that money to work? And by liquidity, it could be uh, cash, but, you know, I, I mean, too much liquidity, yeah. I think it depends, and I'll, I'll let Drew answer first, but I think w- before... Actually, here, I'll just hand it off to you, Drew. You can start. Just taking a quick step back, because I think that's a good question. I was thinking about the same thing, Leslie. But when we're talking about the business thing, just one thing to add there. When when they're super concentrated, when a business owner is super concentrated and their net worth is 80%, so let's say if if their business is uh, 80% of their net worth, in my mind, it's conceptually the same thing as if I looked at a client who wanted to come to the Bonson Group and said, hey, um, take a look at my Vanguard portfolio, and it's 100% in S&P 500 or 80% in S&P 500. Uh, it's a very concentrated position, and it may or may not be good, but it's definitely something that sh- you have concentrated risk, right? So it would be the same thing when you're looking at an investment portfolio, at least in my mind conceptually, that if a client's net worth is all wrapped up in their business, they're not diversified. Because what I'm hearing is, why would we want to sell off some of those assets for liquidity and a little bit of diversification, possibly? Um, that might be something at least worth talking about for the client. What do you guys think? Yeah, going back to what we said earlier, this idea of what-if analysis. In a what-if analysis, you ask a lot of what-if questions. If it's a reasonable what-if question, like, hey, what if that business all of a sudden did have something that put it out of business? If that wrecks your financial plan, well, there's where you should stop and do some planning. Um, Because if that what-if question is reasonable, then you have to plan accordingly. Yeah. And we'll go back to your question, Leslie. I think you are using the word liquidity to almost be synonymous with cash. Yeah, I use I realized that after I asked my question I said I should have said cash instead of liquidity because um you can have liquid assets invested where you can sell them easily when needed. But I guess my question was more around cash because liquidity in, in people's mind a lot of time is cash very accessible assets. And that's why the language m- matters, right? Because liquidity can mean a lot of different things to yeah. a lot of different people. I'll tell you this, for me personally, I'm going to tell you about my, my own personal finances. I'm a glutton for liquidity, meaning I like liquidity. It doesn't mean that I like cash. I like assets that I know I can easily convert to cash. I understand that if I have a stock portfolio and we go through markets that are unfriendly, Regardless of I can convert that stock to cash, I might not like the price that I'm getting paid for it, but I do like liquid assets because I like the flexibility, like you said earlier. Now, I think the question that you're trying to get at is, do you find some people that have too much cash on their balance sheet, which we do? Is that the question you're asking, in a sense? Yes, I think, uh, you know, you have, we're talking right now about people that don't have enough liquidity, they are highly concentrated into an illiquid position and do you have, you have sometimes the reverse? People are highly liquid and are worried to go into illiquid positions. Yeah, I don't know if I can say that I, I've come across a lot of people that use that specific language, but I would say there are a lot of people that have an affinity towards cash because it's really, really easy to understand. It sits in my bank account. I can go to the ATM and I can buy stuff with it. Now, what I would say to that person is, if their financial plan leans on an expected return that is greater than that position will deliver to them, then that's where the financial planning discussion needs to start. But if they have resources above and beyond 
um, what they plan on spending. And that gives them peace of mind and they're kind of indifferent towards that expected return conversation. Um, it's their money then um, to kind of pressure somebody to go down a path uh, that is not comfortable to them that their financial plan doesn't need. I don't know. I'm not really in the business of doing that. I think as long as the client understands that if you're in cash, just that cash also poses risk, right? If, if you're, if you have a flush amount of cash and that's a big part of your portfolio, that's just sitting in your bank account, making, you know, five basis points, um, you're taking on risk there. The risk though, and this piggybacks to you again, I can speak from my banking experience. When I would talk to clients, at the bank that I used to work at, it was very common for clients to have a million dollars in an account making 0% interest because they thought at the end of the day, because it doesn't go up or down, it's totally safe. It's the safest bet. Um, but the invisible boogeyman being inflation is taking away from the purchasing power, right, of that million dollars every single year. And clients conceptually just don't understand that because not seeing any volatility of the cash, the cash remains the same. There remains, I think, an existential, like an inward comfortability and in saying, no, 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 my million dollars is still there. Well, your million dollars, you know, within this last five years has lost X amount of value because of inflation. So as long as the client understands that there are risk in a cash, a cash position um, and it makes sense with their portfolio, I think those are the things that at least we have to keep in mind. Yeah, and that's why I'm a big proponent of this idea of expense-based planning um, because I'm always tethering whatever the allocation is back to the expenses, knowing in my financial plan I'm building that those expenses are growing. So um, that cash position you refer to is going to have a less meaningful uh, proportionality or however you'd say it to those expenses over time because of inflation. Yeah, I can see uh Cases where people will need a large cash balance is, uh, for example, for real estate investors, it's important to keep that in on hand um, if you have a lot of properties. But other than that, I think um, keeping a large cash balance may not make sense. Um, and as far as liquidity, liquid assets, um, we're a big fan of it here, of course, but we also invest in some uh, less liquid alternative assets. Yeah, and that's where I was going to go next is uh, there's three sections to this article. It's your house, your business, your alternatives. And I think where there needs to be clarity for investors is that when you go to purchase things in this alternatives bucket, and we're going to call that anything that is not a stock, a bond, or cash, you need to understand the profile of that investment. And this is what I mean, is that if you're really familiar with being able to go to the ATM machine, or be able to push a button on your computer to sell a stock, or be able to redeem a bond at a certain date, you need to understand when you buy alternatives, uh, those rules might not apply. Um, there are some alternatives, uh, things like private equity, that might have a 10-year commitment to them. Um, or there might be other investments that have um, redemptions that are quarterly or semi-annually. And even on top of that, whatever you think that the liquidity is, those rules can change. Um, if there are markets that are unfriendly um, and the general partners of a particular investment think it's best for you not to start to try to sell this real estate that's illiquid inside the portfolio, they can build gates and other things around that might limit your ability to redeem your shares or units for cash. All this to say, if this is confusing or overwhelming or makes you uncomfortable, it's because you need clarity. You need a clear understanding of if I own an alternative investment, 
and it does not have the same liquidity profile that I'm familiar with, I need to understand what are the benefits. And there are some benefits, right? There is this um, thing, and I don't want to use a big finance word, but there's this thing uh, called the illiquidity premium, right? Uh, David Swenson from the Yale Endowment wrote a, a book that talks a lot about this idea of an illiquidity premium, meaning that if you go into a marketplace that isn't traded by the second, there are opportunities to get things at a little bit of a better price because there's less buyers and sellers. And you are going to get a premium on your return over time conceptually because of that. So if you can go into this space and fish for investments that might have a little bit higher of an expected return, in addition to the fact that they're not traded by the second, so it doesn't capture some of the emotions and sentiment of a market that's driven by fear and greed and euphoria and envy and all these other things, you start to have these alternative assets that behave a lot more in line with the fundamental value as opposed to um, kind of the news cycle that drives some of the market behavior. Yeah, I, I, the alternatives, uh, when I'm thinking of private equities, I think of it just it, just like you were talking about, you use private equities as an example. It's almost like a defensive mechanism if you have a portion of your portfolio in those positions because you take COVID, for instance, um, in March of last year, when you have that kind of panic selling, if you're in a private equity, those are the last assets you could possibly sell, right? And so they're, they're a lot more defensive in times of panic selling. It's like kind of having a cool off period. You know, it's like go take a 10 day, you know, siesta, really think about this, then come back and see if you still want to sell. That's kind of what you're talking about as far as the illiquidity there takes emotions off the table and in cooler heads kind of prevail and to where you can really have a better assessment of the asset at hand um, and it prevents it from, you know, obviously the emotional selling that you're talking about. Yeah, if you're trying to understand the benefits of compounding interest and you want to understand the variable that drives compounding interest the most, it's time. Uh, the longer one stays invested, the higher probability that the returns are going to be positive um, and allows them to not make some bad decisions. And I love that 10-day siesta that you talked about because on March 23rd of 2020, when markets were bottoming, I was having conversations with clients and they were wanting to make wholesale changes on their portfolio. And I said, this is a conversation I'd love to have. And it's a good conversation. It's a conversation we should have, but it feels like the world's ending right now. Not a good time to make decisions. So if you're okay with it, let's table this conversation for six months and then let's have the discussion when things have that cooling off period. And one thing that I told a client when we reviewed one year later after them wanting to make that decision, so we did a, a review in March, we went over the performance of their portfolio on a monthly basis, and I just showed them you got paid X amount for being patient in April of 2020, and then you got X amount paid for being patient in May. And you see the payout for patients, it was unreal when you're talking about sizable dollar amounts, and when you look you know, one year later where some markets were up 75 plus percent off of that bottom. And that's why the advice you just gave is, I would say, perfect advice. <laughs> should be, should be common, like take, take a 10-day siesta. Yeah, that's let's, a good Let's come yeah. back. Yeah. Let's talk about it again. <laughs> I like that. I think that segues us to kind of the conclusion of what I wanted to talk about here. And it's relevant to what you said earlier, um, Leslie. I labeled this part of the article, The Beauty of Cash, because 
I am a big advocate for cash. I think people misunderstand cash a lot of the time. I think people think with this mindset, which you kind of went down this route a little bit. I'm not uh, calling you out, Drew, but where, hey, this earns nothing. Where I think that mindset takes you to a place of like, oh, it has to drive expected returns. It has to drive expected returns. But what we're forgetting is what's this whole article about? Liquidity, right? What is the most liquid asset? The thing that you want to convert everything else into cash, dollars, right? So um, a smart financial plan has a dollar amount that should be kept in cash. And for some people, it will be a million dollars. Why would it be a million dollars? Because it needs to be anchored to their expenses. If somebody spends a million dollars a year, is it imprudent to have a million dollars in cash? No, that's just one year. uh, That's a safety net. That's just one year of reserves. And that's why I want people to understand the beauty of cash. And if they have somebody on television or a financial advisor criticizing cash and trying to show them some sort of proxy or surrogate of what they could use, let me tell you, it's not cash. If my banker tells me your debit card is a lot like cash or your credit card, it's the same as cash. It is not to my barber because he wasn't taking my debit card. He wasn't taking my credit card. And if uh, my haircut costs $40 or whatever it was, and I paid $5 to the ATM, you do the math. That wasn't free. So those things didn't act like cash. Be weary if somebody tells you that this is a cash-like instrument and it's just like cash. There are very few things out there that would fit that description. Yeah, I... I, I want to pull on that just a little bit and, and throw a curveball at you. So during There are no curveballs allowed on this podcast. This is a non-curveball podcast. I'll direct it towards Leslie. So then I'm just kidding. So throw that, the no, curveball I'm, to, I'm totally yeah. messing with you. So, uh, but, but when we think of COVID, I, it's interesting that you bring up the debit card and the credit card. I, I agree with you fundamentally 100%. But, but it is interesting that when we have the COVID moment of March and even to this point, that there are businesses who have reversed and will not take cash. Um, so I, I found myself in a position uh, a couple times during COVID and even recently to where I tried paying with cash and they said, sorry, we don't take that here. But why were they telling you they don't take cash? They were telling me that because they're afraid of the virus. A hygiene issue, right? They're worried Correct. about how dirty cash is. Correct. So I totally understand what you're saying. It, it might not be t- totally relevant. I used a bad analogy because I was using my barber to say even these things that in everyday culture we believe would act like cash in this situation they didn't. I was using that as an analogy to say if somebody says, I want you to buy XYZ fund or I want to buy you know ABC commodity because I'm telling you it's as safe as cash, whew, run for the hills because a lot of the time in crisis situations, cash is king. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why all cash offers take over <laughs> finance offers for houses. <laughs> yeah, we're living in a world right now where like you are offering 20% over asking on a, a piece of real estate and the agent's like, hey, I'm sorry, they went to an all cash buyer because they're regardless of whether that makes sense, people are a glutton for cash. They love this idea of cash in hand. I, I know I have friends that buy things on Craigslist and uh, this might be comical to some. I think it's pretty funny. But one of my friends, uh, when he makes an offer on Craigslist to something, he will send a picture of like the cash in his hand <laughs> to the person to say, like, I, am, I have this money in my hand right now. I'm ready to put it in your hand if you give me said item. That's awesome. 
That's a good strategy. Yeah, <laughs> I like he uses the same picture. I, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> so I, I would say what we want our listeners to take away from today's conversation is that there is a variable that needs to be considered with most financial decisions, and that variable is liquidity. If that is not a word that is familiar to you or understandable, it's totally okay. Um, it might not be familiar to some people in this industry, which means you need to have a conversation with your advisor. You need to understand if I make ABC decision, what impact will it have? And I always, I don't know why I always get this vision in my head of like throwing a rock in a pond and that ripple effect that goes out. Um, there is collateral damage or uh, collateral benefit from every decision that's made. And when we are assessing things like how we purchase a home or what decision we should do with our business, these are not little decisions. These are big decisions. These are huge parts of your balance sheet. So where a lot of these conversations end up taking us is this is a really good launch point for you to have a discussion with your advisor if your advisor has any concerns about the liquidity of your balance sheet. And if so, if there's any planning that should be done. And let me just tell you up front, a lot of that planning doesn't mean, hey, we will push one button or pull one lever to make everything better today. No, sometimes it'll be a 12 to 24 month plan on how you can execute things to improve your balance sheet. So off you go. Great conversation to have with your advisor. We're going to ask that you rate the podcast five stars or preferred. All comments are welcome. You can email tom at thebonsagroup.com. You're welcome to address that email to Drew, Trevor, or Leslie. Happy to answer your questions, read your comments, or even your suggestions of future podcast ideas you would like us to talk about. And of course, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts, Thoughts on, on Money. money. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.